see how they respond. You see, there's something inside of us that we we carry that 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 you know is is much as we try to live a good life, the truth is that that we fall, we 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 crumble. There's times that that uh, we look at the wrong things, or uh, our mind fades uh, to the to the wrong part, or or maybe we have a moment in our life where where uh, circumstances get the better of us, and we do things that we would never do. And how do we reconcile that as, as followers of Christ? How do we handle that? You know, we're, we're meant to be following in the footsteps of Jesus, that, that we're meant to be this embodiment of, of Christ's image, that we're meant to, to portray God's imprint in our lives. But oftentimes the reality is we're just trying to make it through day in and day out. And trying to more minimize our brokenness rather than living lives that are free. That there's always this little nagging thing inside us that says, you know what, if people knew that about you, they would turn their backs on you. And one of the things I love about the Bible is how raw and how honest it is. How... The, our heroes of the faith are really not that great of people. And uh, as we look at this Psalm 51 today, and it, it was written by a guy named David, and he was actually king when he wrote this psalm. And as the artists have been coming up and telling about the, the, the background of their stories, uh, I want to tell you, uh, the background of the circumstances of of why David wrote this psalm, this psalm of confession behind the music, if if you would, you see, David uh, uh, is recorded in in Second Samuel. Uh, there was a time in ancient times where there was kind of a season for war, when the weather was good. I don't know what good weather, you know, war weather is, but but in ancient times there was a time when kings would go to war. And uh, the, Israel was no different. And at this time, David sent out his armies during this time, but he did not go with them. And he was hanging out, and he's walking around one day uh, in his in his castle or his palace, and he's looking around. And as he was looking around, he he saw this woman. Not an ordinary woman, a gorgeous woman who was naked on top of a rooftop taking a bath. And it kind of stirred something inside him, if you could well imagine. And him being king and him knowing that, you know what, her husband is probably out at war, maybe he would just have her over for dinner and get to, to know this beautiful woman. So he sent his people over there and, and said, hey, the, the king has requested your presence for dinner. And so she came and uh, he ended up sleeping with her that evening. And he probably felt bad about it, but but he was like, all right, well, that was, it just happened and 
you know, I'm, I'll deal with this and, and I won't do it again. I don't know what the thought process was. But he found out later that she was pregnant. And at this point, he, he probably had a lot of anxiety and was wondering what he was going to do and how he wasn't going to cover this mess up. So he, did, he decided that, you know what, I have a great plan. I'm going to call her husband back from the, from the war, from the battlefront. And I'm going to ask him some questions about the battle. And then I'm going to tell him to go home and sleep with his wife. And then, you know what, he'll think that she impregnated her, he impregnated her, and, uh, and it'll all be good. And this was his plan, so he brought him in and goes, how goes the war? Oh, you know, is this and that, and, you know, war talk, whatever. And he says, okay, great. He goes, hey, why don't you go home and, you know, sleep with that beautiful wife of yours? So he, he left, and, and David probably thought to himself, man, that was a close one. And I totally messed up, but you know what? I got this great plan, and I outsmarted everybody. It's all good. He said, you know what? He didn't go home. He's like, what? He didn't go home. He's like, no, he sleeping on the ground in, in front of the, the guard shack. So David, Plex, why would a man do this? He, he calls him back in the next day and said, hey, why didn't you go home and, and sleep with your wife? Man, I, I brought you back. I gave you permission to go do this. And he said, how, how could I? How could I? Go and, and be in my own bed and sleep with my wife knowing that my fellow soldiers are sleeping by themselves in tents on the battlefront. And you can imagine David sitting there going, oh man, feeling quite like the dirt bag. So, you know what? You might think at this point he would come clean, but no, David says, you know what? Have something to drink. And what his next plan was to cover his sin was to get him lubricated up and get a little alcohol in him. But you know what? A soldier with a little alcohol in him might make him drop his, uh, his morals, uh, his standards a little bit and forget about the guys out on the battlefield and, and go home and see his wife and sleep with her. So he gets them all liquored up and, and revving to go and, you know, probably saying, yeah, you know, beautiful wife and getting them all encouraged. So off he goes right back to the guard shack, sleeps on the ground. Plan failed again. So what did David do? Fall to his knees, repent, say, you know what, I've messed up. I have totally made a shambles of this. Now, you see, David, trying to cover his tracks once again, devised another plan. If this man has too much integrity, if he, his standards are so high that he won't go along with my plan, I have to eliminate him. So he sat down and he carefully wrote a note to the generals on the battlefront, instructing how 
he was going to have him killed. It was a brilliant plan. No one would ever know. He would... He wrote down that what he wanted to do is have the generals put him in the front lines of the hottest part of the battlefield where the fighting was its fiercest. And when he was up there and at the peak of the battle, he wanted the generals to tell all the soldiers to fall back except one man. And he wrote this letter out and sealed it with his royal seal and gave it to the soldiers to deliver this message that he had no idea was his death And the plan worked flawlessly. Except there was one problem. David knew what he had done. God knew what he had done. And a friend who God opened up his eyes challenged him on what he had done. And David, in total repentance, wrote this song recorded in Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God. Because of your unfailing love, because of your great compassion, blot out the stain of my sins. Watch, wash me clean from my guilt. Purify me from my sin. For I recognize my shameful deeds. They haunt me day and night. Against you and you alone I have sinned. I have done what is evil in your sight. You will be proved right in what you say. And your judgment against me is just. For I was born a sinner. Yes, from the moment my mother conceived me. But you desire honesty from the heart. So you can teach me to be wise in my inmost being. Purify me from my sins and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Oh, give me back my joy again. You have broken me. Now let me rejoice. Don't keep looking at my sins. Remove the stain of my guilt. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit in me. Do not banish me from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me again the joy of your salvation and make me willing to obey you. Then I will teach your ways to sinners and they will return to you. Forgive me for shedding blood, O God, who saves. Then I will joyfully sing of your forgiveness. Unseal my lips, O Lord, that I may praise you. You would not be pleased with sacrifices or I would bring them. If I brought you a burnt offering, you would not accept it. The sacrifice you want is a broken spirit, a broken and repentant heart. Oh God, you will not despise. Look with favor on Zion and help her. Rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will be pleased with worthy sacrifices and with our whole burnt offerings. And bulls will again be sacrificed on your own. Pray with me. Dear God, I just... Um, Pray that you will open up our hearts and our minds as we kind of look at this song written by David. 
this song written by David, but maybe written for us. To put words to our heavy hearts, to the burden that we carry. God, I just pray that you can free us. That you can make this a place where confession is encouraged. So we won't be held bondage by it. And we can truly experience freedom in you. We love you, Lord Jesus. Amen. He starts off, and it's interesting to me how he starts off. He starts off with this confession. He, he says, Have mercy on me, God, because of your unfailing love, because of your great compassion, blot out the stains of my sin. He doesn't start out saying, Oh God, that conniving woman was naked on the rooftop. How could any man resist? It wasn't my fault. He just comes straight out and he doesn't make excuses. He just says, God, have mercy on me, not because of anything that I have done, not because of my merit, because, but because of who you are. Have mercy on me. And he talks about how he wants to be cleansed from his guilt. And I think it's very telling. Verse 3, he says, For I recognize my shameful deeds. They haunt me day and night. You see, when we experience adversity, it, it's based in broken relationships. It can be broken trust. It can be... Uh, you know, something had, had happened that, that a lot of times if somebody even perceives of wrongdoing, that it can haunt us day and night. There's no escaping it. You can't, you know, run to Colorado or go to Hawaii or, or you know, run down into the Bahamas and get away from the adversity and the pain and the guilt that haunts you day and night. There's only one way to do it, and that David is showing us through this confession of just saying, look, God, I am under no preconceived notion that, that I have it all together. That I was born broken, and I continue being broken in my ways. That the reality is that all of us are in this circumstance. The Bible calls David a man after his own heart. Can you imagine that? A man after God's own heart. A man who is an adulterer and a murderer. And this is a man after God's own heart. That he is the, the chosen ruler, the leader of Israel. And he has this colossal failure. And you look at that and you think about that and, and you think, oh my gosh, how could God ever call such a person a man after his own heart? How could he ever allow someone to get into leadership who has these kind of flaws? And the reality is that we all carry the 
propensity to do ill, great wrongs in us under the right circumstance. You see, in David's story, it starts out that during the time when kings went to war, David stayed behind. See, right there we get this clue in that first sentence in, in 2 Samuel that, you know what? David was not where he was meant to be. He was meant to be at war with, with his men. But he decided not to go. He decided to stay with all the men away and to kind of survey around and maybe kind of, maybe not intentionally, but accidentally let his eyes wander where he probably knew they weren't meant to wander. And what happened was that, that this started to build on one another. That, that one bad decision led to another bad decision that led to a ba another bad decision until there was a man murdered, a woman widowed, and a boy who was a bastard. All because he started down a path that he shouldn't have started down ever before. And he's sitting here and he's like, God, I confess to you. I confess to you that, that I have wronged. I have messed up and it's haunting me. It's eating me alive. And even if this would have all worked out, this, this master plan, that I, that I put together, I couldn't have lived with it and I need you to forgive me. And he goes from, from there and then in verse 7 uh, through 10, he goes to God and he, said, and he asks him three things. In verse 7, he, he says, look, remove my sin, for, forgive me for what I have done. And then he says, restore my joy. It's interesting if you think about it. And we talk a lot about joy here. And there's one thing that's absolutely true with joy is that joy cannot exist where guilt lures and hangs around. You see, it, it, guilt is like acid to joy. That, that, that guilt... Is like cyanide. It just it kills our spirit. It kills our joy. And there's so much power that the enemy uses in guilt and saying, you know what? Hold that in. Don't confess it. Because if you confess it, people will turn away. If you confess it, it'll be out there. And there's just this, this building of, and, and holding on to this. And each one of us do it. Me, you, everyone. There's things in us that we want to hold this in for some reason. And when we do that, the enemy wins. It gives them power. It's kind of interesting as I've looked at, at political races over um, the past several decades. And if you, the way that you would used to be able to... Uh, discredit a politician was that you would go and try to find skeletons in his closet and 
One thing that would disqualify a politician, especially a presidential candidate, was past drug use. And it's kind of interesting, you look at it, uh, you know, when the first Bush, you know, up into the first Bush, if anybody ever found out that, that you were taking drugs, that you would have been run out of office or you would have never been voted into office. And then Bill Clinton came in. I'm not kidding here. I'm just, this is seriously, if you think about it. The Bill Clinton came and, and he admitted something that he didn't have to admit. You know, it was kind of silly how he did it. They asked him if, if he had ever smoked marijuana, and he said, yes, but I didn't inhale. And everybody laughed, and what a silly thing, but it was actually a turning Made a confession. And when he made that confession, his enemies lost all power. Then you go to George Bush, who openly admitted he was an alcoholic and that Jesus had changed his life and he was no longer an alcoholic. And because he openly admitted that, that his enemies no longer had power over him on, on that issue. And then all the way to presidential-elect Obama, who came out and just fully disclosed, hey, you know what? I've done cocaine in the past. And he confessed that. And because he confessed that, I believe that that allowed him to continue to go on to eventually be elected or be a president-elect. Because if anybody would have found out, if he would have tried to hide it, that he would have been run out of the election. And the same thing is true for each and every one of us, that, that people are willing, even the secular world is willing and eager to forgive. But when we hold in and we conceal this guilt, that it gives the enemy power and it starts to haunt us day and night, and it erodes our soul and steals our joy, David is sitting here and he's saying, God, remove my sin. You alone can forgive me. That I need you to restore my joy because I'm not experiencing joy anymore because this toxic guilt is in my life. And then renew your spirit to me. He continues on and talks about his concern. He pleads that God not take his Holy Spirit from him. And this might be an odd kind of concept to us who, who are followers of Christ. He says, don't banish me from your presence, God, because I'm admitting this. And I don't know what David's exact thought patterns were in this. That if, you know, he's thinking, you know what, God doesn't know that I've done all these things. And once I admit it, that he's going to banish me from his presence and take his Holy Spirit from me. Or if he, he's just in a portion of pain where, where he's feeling separated from God, and he's like, God, don't banish me. You know who I am. You created me. You knit me together in my mother's womb. That you know who I am. And you know what I've done. And I've 
come to you broken. And I want you to put me back together. And he says, God, if you do this, then I, I promise to do three things for you. Number one, if you restore me, I will be open about this, so open that he wrote a song for the whole congregation of, of the whole nation of Israel. And think how profound that is that this leader, the king of Israel, who had done all of this, wrote this song of confession and said, you know what, if God can use a sinner like me, if God can use a broken, messy person like me, he can definitely use you. He goes on in 14, says, you know what, I'll also sing of your forgiveness. God, if you forgive me for this, that I will write songs and I will tell of how forgiving of a God you are. And I will praise you forever. And then he finally, in the last few verses, he comes in with his confidence that he knows that God will forgive him. And that through this forgiveness that that in the ashes of, of this, that he will bring some good. And he talks about how the sacrifice that he wants, that he's not pleased with sacrifices or, or burnt off, what he really wants is a, is a broken and contrite spirit. A broken and contrite spirit that comes and says, God, I cannot do this on my own, that I on my own devices that I, I am poor and I'm wretched and I'm broken. And I need you to fill my life and lead me and guide me because when I'm left to my own ways, I go down the path of destruction. And each and every one of us, that this is a real thing that we deal with on a daily level. That all of us, each and every one. The Bible says that we've all fallen short of God's glorious standard. Now, not all of us do an epic failure like, like David did. But all of us do fail. And I think that the overpowering message here is that, that God is not concerned, so concerned with your offerings or your service or your lip service or, or, or your facades. Concerned about your relationship with Him and having a right relationship with Him and yielding your life over to Him. You see, when we build a facade, I don't know if... I, if you've ever been to Hollywood or Universal Studios, when you build a facade up, you have to have braces behind it. And the bigger the facade, the, the larger the braces you have to build to support it. And sometimes when the, when the wind blows, when the winds of adversity blow in our lives and, and when the winds blow on a, on a movie set, that those facades come tumbling down because those supports just can't bear the weight. Yeah, there's great power the enemy has when we hold in the guilt. 
that's not the life that God has envisioned for us. That He hasn't envisioned us to live a life of a facade. He hasn't called you to be a Barbie or a Ken doll, a perfect little wind-up Christian toy that you walk around and you say, God bless you, God bless you, you know, Jesus, Jesus, or whatever. You know, God didn't design you to be a robot. God designed you because he wanted to be in relationship. And the most mind-blowing thing is that he created us knowing that we would fail him. But he loves us and wants us to be in a right relationship with him. That he's willing to forgive us for those. And yeah, you know what? There's consequences to our actions. But God is a God of love. God is a God of forgiveness. And we have freedom in Christ. And that's not just freedom to eat what we want and do what we want and, you know, whatever. No, the real freedom is the freedom to be able to put your head on a pillow at night and sleep. To go through the day in knowing that if somebody sent you a note and said they found out all is lost, that you wouldn't, Think about fleeing town. If some obnoxious person came up to you and put their hand on your shoulder and with as much sincerity as they could muster looked you in the eye and said, I don't believe the things that they're saying about you, that you would smile and say, good one. Because our account has been short that we know that we live open lives, that we have given to God and said, do with what you want. To going to people when we've wronged them and saying, will you forgive me? If it's perceived or if it's real, it really doesn't matter. What is important is the relationship. And that we have to go out of our way to make sure that we have a right relationship with God and a right relationship with one another because everything else is just common sense. All of creation points to this. In fact, I was reading a book uh, the other day that, that even said the image of the cross with its vertical beam pointing to God and its horizontal beam pointing to others, gives us clue to what the main thing is for God. It's to be in right relationship with Him, in right relationship with people. And we can't do that unless we're honest with one another. And it's my prayer that this can be a place where we don't look to hammer people or find things in the closet and expose people but that we willingly, when we trip and we fall, we all trip and we all fall, that instead of trying to hold it in and having it haunt us, that we'll have people beside us on our left and right who will pick us up and dust us off and say, you know what, 
That was an epic failure. God still loves you. And I still love you. And we're going to learn and glorify God. Let's pray. Dear God, thank you for David's honesty. Thank you for the gift of, of confession that you don't wish us to carry guilt and shame, that you died on the cross to take that. That your desire is for us to live in relationship with you, to, to live out the vision that you have for our lives. God, I just pray for each and every one of us as we go through life and we, we fall, that you will give us friends that will help us up, that we will have enough confidence in you to be able to openly admit these things and ask for forgiveness when we need to ask. That we keep the main thing the main thing and that we will not succumb to the temptation of living a life of a facade. In Jesus' name, amen.